Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, gang, Mike and Mark with you once again. And folks, we've got a real treat for you today. You know, Mark, not only is our guest Hall of Fame baseball player, but this guy, we think, truly personified the town in which he played, former Detroit Tiger, Alan Trammell. Yeah, and you think about it, Mike, uh, I think as a baseball player, uh, what really resonated with me was longevity. And 20 years in one uniform, you have to have people that really have an influence on you. So we'll dive into that with Alan Trammell. But also, we're going to talk about his Hall of Fame career and in that that big, daunting speech that he had at Hall of Fame career. So there's so many things to dive into. So let's let's get after it. All righty, let's bring him in. Alan, great to have you with us. I appreciate it, guys. Um, you know, again, uh, we're talking baseball, which is a good thing. And uh, hey, what do you got for me? Yeah, you want to jump in the time machine with us? Well, let's let's take it back. You know, I got I might have to take a couple seconds to to think and 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 think back. It's been a while. All right. But nevertheless, I, I'll do my best. All right, you go ahead and get the wheels turning because I want to take you way back there to your teenage years. You're drafted in 1976, and you get to the big leagues the next September. You're just 19 years old. So take us back to when you found out you were getting the call to the big leagues. Well, that would have been um, right around September 1st of 1977. And, and uh, when, I, when I tell my story, I, I always have to include my sidekick. Because Lou Whitaker, my second baseman, the, uh, the tandem of, of, of Whitaker and Trammell, um, we were always together. And the reason why I'm saying this is that we were told together, we were brought up together. So we were going into the playoffs uh, in the Southern League. Uh, in 1977, um, and our manager Eddie Brinkman, who was a ex major league shortstop and a, and a darn good one, because at that time he held the consecutive errorless streak for a major league shortstop. At that time, now, I don't know if too many people remember that. It's it's been broken multiple times since. Um, but so Eddie Brinkman was our manager in 1977. Uh, we're in. We're playing Jacksonville in the finals, and actually, we got postponed a couple of days because of rain. But we had already been told, Lou and I. So we end up winning the championship the first part of September in Jacksonville. So we celebrate that night. The team gets on a bus, takes them back to Montgomery, Alabama. Lou and I stay over in Jacksonville, have a good time ourselves. We take a <laughs> flight uh, the next day to Detroit, and. The Tigers have a day game that day, um, and we go right from the airport to the to the uh, to the ballpark. We go up to Jim Campbell, who's our general manager. We have to sign our contract. We go right down to the clubhouse, and this is close to game time. So we suit up. Uh, we don't play that day, but we fly to Boston, and the very next day, which was September 9th, if I'm not mistaken, we played. Lou and I both played in our first major league game. Uh, the second game of a doubleheader in Fenway Park. And that's a lot that I've spoken about, but just the fact that, uh, you know, Fenway Park, obviously one of the nostalgic uh, ballparks still around, man, that, uh, that was very, very special. Hey, look, before we dive into the, the exploits of Trammell and Whitaker, and I know there's great stories, who'd you call when you found out you were going to go to the big leagues? Because the way we're looking at it is, 
first of all, you can't get a drink because you're a teenager. You barely get into a movie theater. That is true. So I'm assuming you had to call parents or family. That is correct. You obviously call mom and dad and they're back in San Diego and, you know, obviously tracking me. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, I signed in June of 76 and uh, this is now September of 77. So that's barely over a year. So, um, you know, a lot of things happen in a short period of time, but obviously calling mom and dad and they were the ones that okayed, uh, you know, as most uh, high school kids, I was prepared to go to college. And uh, that's what I thought I was going to do. But when the Tigers drafted me in the second round, you know, I wanted to play pro ball like most guys did. But uh, I just kind of my thought was, oh, they must like me. So, you know, I wanted to thank my, my parents. Obviously, uh, they did not they weren't able to fly out um, and, and see me in Fenway Park. But uh, the next day, so be, so, so be it that we played the second game of a doubleheader. The next day on Saturday is the game of the week, and it's the Tigers and Red Sox at Fenway Park. And, you know, I'm making a big deal about it, but it is a big deal because that was when baseball, that was it, the game of the week on Saturday. And so I got a chance, along with a lot of my friends and other family, got a chance to see the Tigers. And Ralph Halk was our manager uh, that particular, at that time. Uh, he told us after that game, uh, that doubleheader second game, that uh, Lou and Tram, you're going to play on national TV the next day. And uh, obviously that put a big smile on our face. And, uh, and we didn't, you know, we did not win either one of those games, but we held our own. And that's that's kind of how the, the story of the Trammell, Trammell Whitaker story. Tram, you, when you dive into your first, uh, a lot of it has to do with that first at bat, that first hit. Uh, take us into your mind and, and what that was on your first hit at Fenway Park. Well, can I be honest with you? Of course. I was nervous. <laughs> you know, I was 19 years old, and the first player that came to mind from the Red Sox was Carl Yastrzemski. And so as a young boy, you know, I was following, but uh, the Red Sox back in the, in the late 60s, Yaz uh, uh, Triple Crown winner, um, you know, I, I was thinking about Yaz and I was, uh, I was in awe, to be honest with you. And so, you know, just thinking, and again, I'm thinking you had the same feeling. We all have had the same feeling at some point in time that when we're playing against some of our, our, our idols, that you kind of get caught up in that. Um, but uh, lo and behold, you know, after making a few right turns, making outs, you know, you start getting ticked off at yourself. So, you know what, I, I you know, I'm competing and, uh, you know, I got to I got to try to figure out a way. But going back to that first at bat, it was off a guy named uh, a pitcher named Reggie Cleveland. And Lou was hitting second. I was hitting ninth in the lineup. Now, Lou got to hit his first time up. So I come up here an inning later and uh, lo and behold, my first at bat, a line drive up the middle, base hit. So again, it's something that your first at bat, you're never going to forget. Now, obviously, it's a better story when you do. Does it really matter if you don't get another hit or you hit, you know, you don't do very well. But the fact that I got that uh, first at bat and the first hit is something that I'll never forget for sure. Do you still have that baseball? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it's probably got some dust in it. And, you know, at some point in my career, along with some of the other uh, moments, you got some of the, the cases for the balls and, uh, you know, have them put away. Now, I haven't looked at them since this, the moves over the years, uh, but I do have that along with a few others. But uh, that certainly will always put a smile 
like yourself. I mean, you know somewhere that it might be in a box, it might be on a mantle, but you know that you have it. And uh, you know, again, it doesn't get much better because you know getting your first hit and then really um, you know seeing your first baseball card. Uh, those are some of the better moments that you'll that you never forget. When you uh, step in that clubhouse, you're among some legends and some older fellas will say, how were you received not only by your teammates, by, but also by your manager, Ralph, how could you mention? Well, that's a, that's a good question because um, you know, I, I'm thinking, and I'm kind of reminiscing as I'm talking, I'm thinking about somebody like uh, the great Al Kaline uh, who uh, came up to the big leagues at 18 years old. And he tells the story about how, you know, he was not liked. obviously, you know, he's a, he's a kid coming out of high school and uh, he's taken somebody's job. So you can kind of equate that to the same with us, that you know, you're taking somebody's job, so to speak, or at least the, uh, the veterans are looking at, okay, look at this, these young kids. You know, are they going to, uh, uh, they're gonna try to take my job. And yes, that's what we were trying to do. Um, so, but the fact that the Tigers weren't that good at that particular time, I think helped it guys. Just because, you know, we, uh, in 1975, they had the worst record. The Tigers had the worst record in baseball. And so we should have had the first pick in 1976. But back in that day, that they rotated American and National. So in 76, Houston had the first pick. The Tigers had the second, only because it was the National League's turn. We should have, actually, we earned that right to have the first pick. Okay, so that didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. but the fact about the way the players, uh, we had a couple of veterans. Mickey Stanley really uh, was very, very nice to us. Rusty Staub, who at that time was still you know, a very good major league player. They made us feel welcome. So that helped. I, I honestly, I don't know maybe behind the scenes what they were saying and what they were thinking. But at least outwardly, they did not show any animosity to us. And it not, wasn't only Lou and I. It was Jack Morris and Lance Parrish. There was four of us that got called up at the same time. And so we were all kind of together. Tram, you fast forward uh, the following season. You make your first opening day. And yeah. take us back to Tiger Stadium and your feelings and your emotions going into that. Well, that's, a, that's another. I guess any opening day is going to be special, especially your first. But Mark the Bird Fidrich pitched that game. And, you know, unfortunately for Mark, uh, his career didn't last as long as it should have. Uh, but the fact is, uh, 76 was his big year. 77, he pitched a half year, got hurt. But he was ready to go in 78. So we're playing Toronto. And I remember, uh, I think, that I, I know we won the game, and I want to say it was 5-1, to one, and it's the top of the ninth, and Bird actually throws a complete game. But it's cold. It's early April, and it's cold. And I'm out there, uh, and I was freezing, but, you know, we're up and, and uh, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. And it was a cool, windy day. And so Bird is going down. If you can visualize his antics, you know, he's bending over and he's talking to himself. But there's a wrapper right in front of the mound that's in his way, and it's disrupting his eyesight. So he goes down off the mound, and he tries to pick this wrapper up. And just as he bends down to pick the wrapper up, the wind blows it away. Well, Mark didn't stop. He took, off, he took off after it, and he got closer to the third base line. He got the wrapper. He stuck it in his back pocket. He ended up completing the game. We won the ball game. But for whatever reason, that's really what I remember most about that opening day. We won, and it was Mark the Bird Fidrich doing his thing and, and just 
again, it was a sad story that uh, that the bird didn't his career didn't last. You know, you get off to this start that uh, any fan just was living, I think, vicariously through you and through your buddy Lou Whitaker and, and other young players at the time. Right. Uh, in comes Sparky Anderson yeah. as a manager and an interesting fella, I think, for all of us on the outside. There you are on the inside. Sparky already came from a track record of success. And I remember reading a quote where he was concerned that maybe you and Lou wouldn't hit enough to play every day at that level. How, how did that go? And obviously, <laughs> both of you had a point, but I think you win in the end. Yeah, we did. But uh, uh, you know what? When we first came up, again, uh, we're ba- Lou and I are basically the same age, and we were very thin. And, um, you know, he used to use the term that you're hitting with a wet newspaper or you got, you're hitting with balsa wood. And he was, he was teasing us, but he was in his way. He was trying to, he was trying to push us a little bit. And through, you know, experience and Gates Brown, who was our hitting coach at the time, you know, Lou was a left-handed hitter. So he had every ball, basically most balls to left field. And I, as a right-handed hitter, hit a lot of balls to the opposite field, right field. Well, that was okay, and that's a good stroke to have initially, but eventually, you know, they're going to start busting me in. So we learned how to, to pull balls and, and learn how to use counts in our favor, and that was what Gator uh, helped us with. But the fact that Sparky would kind of coax us on, and uh, you know, one of the other stories that Lou and I, the first few years in spring training, we roomed together, and there used to be a, there still is in Lakeland, Florida, the Tiger Spring Training Home, they had a steak and shake right down the street. And he used to tell Lou and I, he goes, I want you guys every night, I want you guys to go get a milkshake. He wanted to put weight on us. <laughs> that was Sparky's thing. He's like, okay, guys, you know, you're at 160, 165 pounds. We got to get you up a little bit. And so, you know, he'd encourage us. And now there's a lot of people that are going, whoa, that would have been nice. Uh, but because, again, that we were so thin at that time, that uh, that's what he, that was one of his little things that he would tell us. I want you guys to go to Steak and Shake. You know what Lou and I did? We went there. And we did. We had a little dessert, little snack at night. And eventually, you know, it took us a couple of years to uh, to get a couple of, couple of pounds on. That comes with maturity, physically and mentally. Uh, but the fact that we came up at an early age, we were able to hold our own. The Tigers weren't that good, and we just kind of kind of grew together, you know, naturally or or, or just accordingly. Um, but uh, Sparky was tough. He had tough love on us early on, uh, but uh, nevertheless, man, it, it it paid off. Tram, was that tough love important for you? It, was it something that you needed, or was it something that you grew accustomed to and uh, built that relationship with Sparky? Well, I think it's all of the above, to be honest with you. But you know, to say that we needed it. Now I'm fast forwarding now that I'm, you know, I'm older and and a parent and and basically an old man now. And I smile, honestly. And I'm so thankful that our lives cross paths because I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I would have made it to the major leagues and all, but there was no question that he was my number one mentor and that he helped the process uh, myself and, and, and that group of players that we had and with the Tigers when I first came up. Um, Again, tough love, going back to your parents at that, at that time, teachers, all the coaches that we played for back, back in that time, that was just kind of how it was. And I think it was better because, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, they didn't say a lot. And so um, if they told you something and then they backed off and you kind of scratching your head behind the scenes, 
you knew that you needed to get it together, so to speak. And I'm very appreciative that, uh, that, uh, that I grew up and I came up in that time because it definitely helped the process. And uh, you know what, any good manager, guys that you played for, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, that's what you need and you need to be pushed a little bit. Sometimes we don't want to admit it, but I think uh, we all want to be coached. And uh, that was Sparky. He was the manager. And, you know, in baseball, they say the manager, but he was the pitching coach. He was the hitting coach. He was everything. He was, we had other coaches, but he did it all. Tram, when you start looking at your career, it's really uh, about your teammates, as we've already heard, your managers, but you also have individual accomplishments that are you have to be proud of. In 1980, you get elected to your first All-Star game. It's in Los Angeles, California, Dodger Stadium. Uh, tell us what that was like. And at 22 years old, yeah. that had to be a, a feather in your cap. Yeah, it, it sure was. I'm thinking at uh, 22, I would have been a senior in college. And I already had, you know, it was in my third plus year in the major league. So it, uh, it all came real quick. But that was my, that was my stepping out year. Um, and, you know, in, in my mind going into, I mean, obviously I wasn't going to being in Detroit and we didn't have, you know, we were drawing fine, but we weren't the Yankees. And at that time, I believe it was Bucky Dent and it was the big cities that were winning the fan voting. So I knew that I wasn't going to be a starter, but I thought, you know, I deserved in my mind, I deserved to make the all-star team. And I did, I made it. And I actually, you know, got in the game played the last uh, couple of innings. Bobby Gritch uh, was the second baseman. I remember that. And I was on deck. I was on deck when the game was over. Bruce Suter actually struck out my teammate Lance Parrish to end the game. And I was swinging the bat very well at that time. And I was just, I was cringing. We, I believe we, we lost a game, I know, and I want to say it was five to four. Uh, but you know what? I wanted, I wanted that at bat very bad. It never happened. Uh, but the, just the fact of being, as you mentioned, Dodger Stadium, I'm from San Diego. I got a chance to get a few extra tickets. I had a few people that came up and that was just very, very special. And that first all-star game, I did uh, participated in six of them, but no question that that was, that was the one that I remember the most, that first one, Dodger Stadium. When you look at uh, all six of them collectively, yep. is there... One game, one moment, though, that jumps off the page from a personal uh, vantage point that you thought, all right, you know what, this is more significant than the other moments I've had in All-Star Games? Well, it would have been 88. Uh, and that was that was the only year that I was selected a starter by the fans. So we came off the 87 and I had that was by, by far my best year personally, statistically. And um so 88, uh, you know, I've got, you know, obviously because of that year, a little more fanfare and all that, I was selected. I was having a good year. Um, I was selected to start. And lo and behold, the week prior to the game, I got hit by a pitch and I had a little fracture in my elbow and I wanted a DL. So I couldn't play in the game, but I did go to Cincinnati and I participated in all the events and just, you know, pregame and all that, sat on the bench during the game but I couldn't play. But the fact that I was elected a starter, and that was the only time is something that I'll never forget. And I'm very appreciative of the family or the fans, excuse me, uh, for selecting me. Let's spin you back to 1984, Tram. Yeah. Uh, great yeah. year for you. Really yeah. great year for the club. Obviously your world series winner and you get to the postseason, and your first postseason is the uh, championship series against the Royals. Yeah. And, and you get yourself a hit. You got this bad yes. shoulder you're talking about. Yeah. 
take us to the the point in time where it occurred to you you're representing the bluest of blue collar towns on the biggest of baseball stages. Well, something that comes to mind, and again, when you talk about Detroit being a blue collar town, which it is, and 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 that's a great uh, to me. That's a it's a compliment because they're good, hardworking people. But you know, being the auto industry, um, I remember when I first came. Uh, one of the few things that I bought with my bonus, I bought a Toyota, and I bought it in Bristol, Virginia, when I where I first signed. So I had that car, and when I got called up the next year, and then so you know for a few years after, I'd drive that. That was my car. Well, I used to get some fan mail, and some of that mail would be uh, about how come I'm not driving an American motor car. And it really, and the reason why I'm telling the story, being from San Diego, we were, we, it wasn't quite like that. There was a lot of those kinds of vehicles, foreign cars, here in San Diego. Never, never even dawned on me. So not that I went out and sold that vehicle, but I was very conscious of that after that. But again, this was the Motor City, and it's a blue-collar town, and I need to uh, be a little more understanding of that. And again, you know, great people, great fans, and and I can't say enough about that. So uh, that was part of the deal. That uh, you know, again, that was uh, that's what they did. That was the uh, the economy. Um, and uh, you know, again, I'm proud to be part of. It. That's my second home. Obviously, San Diego's home, but uh, spent a lot of my time. You know, in Detroit, as they still do. So, uh, you know, good people. But again, lo and lo and behold, uh, you know, we uh, we get to go home and play against my hometown team. You mentioned, you know, we beat the Royals. Um, and the things that are coming to mind, the first, you know, my first time up in the playoffs, we're facing Kansas City, and Bud Black was the first pitcher that I faced. I hit a triple my first time up. Now let's let's fast forward that to the World Series. We open up in San Diego, Nate. Nate, I say Nate Thurman basketball. Mark Thurman is pitching. Lou Whitaker hits a double. And so often as we did during that 84 year, we jumped out. So Lou hits the double and like two pitches in, I get a base hit to left. The Tigers are up one to nothing. So those first couple at bats, the playoffs and the World Series, you know, you get to hit your first time up in that kind of environment and get some confidence. And again, I was swinging well and, you know, I was able to kind of carry it, carry it out throughout the series. But getting the hit, that first time up in both those series was huge. And you think about the World Series MVP, as Mike yep. mentioned, but also a game that you had two two-run home runs, and who's on base? Lou Whitaker. But <laughs> what did that game feel like uh, for you personally and also collectively? Well, uh, you know, that's very special. I think, you know, if you, you think back, um, that was the, uh, the pinnacle for me. That was, there's no game that I played in that, that meant more. And um, the reason being is we won the game four to two. And so Jack throws nine innings and he shuts down the pods for the second time, but he goes nine innings. So there's our horse doing his thing. But the first and the third inning, you know, again, the scenario was Lou got on and I hit the two run homers and, you know, it's the third inning and we're up, but we don't score again. And just like that whole series, you know, I know we won four games to one and everybody thinks, you know, we kicked their, you know, what, well, that's true four games to one, but each, each game we jumped out, but they were always right there nipping at us and we couldn't quite, we couldn't quite get rid of them, so to speak. As you would imagine, it's a World Series and uh, deservingly so. They, they were there for a good reason. Um, but uh, again, the game, the two two-run homers, we went four to two. Obviously, those runs meant something. And uh, 
So that's really what I think back that, uh, you know, that that was the difference of the game and that, you know, obviously puts a smile on their face. Another guy that uh, comes to mind that, that uh, you already mentioned, but also um, he was waiting at home plate every single time you hit the two run home runs. That's Kirk Gibson. Yeah. Uh, dive into a little bit of what he meant to you as a player and also a teammate, because you guys had a relationship that went so far beyond your playing days. Well, that is true. <clears throat> and um, let me, let me take a second to try to put this in the right, in the right words. And this is all, when I say this is all a compliment, but I've never met anybody like him. I never met it, never met anybody like him when I was playing. I've never met anybody like him today. And he obviously was a football player. And when he first came to the Tigers, he was a football player playing baseball. And he had a lot to learn. And he was gruff. And he did not want to listen like he needed to. It took him some time. But once he did, he became a darn good major league player and a great teammate. But he was, he was, he was somebody that, man, you didn't say much to him. When he got ready for a game, man, he was his own little world. And uh, I didn't personally need that myself but let's make no mistake about it I watched how he prepared I watched how he got intent his his intensity like a football player and then over time as I mentioned he was able to channel that energy and become a maniac and again a maniac in a good sense that he was able to go out now if you were a shortstop and second baseman I'm glad that the majority of my career I got a chance to play with him because he was coming in to break up the double play. Now, the rules nowadays, it's different. Those days, yeah, he was coming after it in a clean way. But you knew when Kirk Gibson was on first base, those second basemen in shortstop knew exactly where he was at. So he was a very good teammate. And, you know, he had a flair for the dramatic, you know, game five of that World Series. He hits a couple of big home runs for us. Uh, and then he did something in 1988, you know, he did something that still makes Eckersley twitch. It does. <laughs> and it should, I mean, it's just something about, about uh, Kirk Gibson and getting back to the game five with him is that, you know, that the, they wanted to walk him. Dick Williams had already put up the four for goose to walk him, And, you know, he talked him out of it. So when the, when uh, Dick comes out to talk to him, he's talking about, you know, he's had great success. Gibby's first major league at bat was against Goose Gossett's. And Goose got him in pitches. He blew him away. Obviously, blew a lot of people away. Gibby was thinking about that in that particular bat, that here's my chance. Here's a chance for me to get back at him. And uh, I think we all, we all know what happened. He ends up hitting a three-run homer in the bottom of the eighth to kind of seal the deal for us. You know, Alan, as we talk about some of the fellows you played with, um, to your point, and I think it's inescapable as it should be, you're paralleled with Lou Whitaker um, for so many good reasons. And interestingly, you play more than 1,800 games together. That's the third most by a combo in baseball history, but you're talking shortstop second baseman. That puts you in, in elite air, right, in rarefied air. Is there a reason in your mind that Lou Whitaker is still not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm trying to do everything I can. Anytime I get a chance to talk about my partner, you know, I just don't, I don't understand. And I, you know, I'm, I might be biased and I, I don't care. Uh, I'm entitled to my opinion where he, he gets no love. He doesn't get the love that he deserves. And so when you go back uh, when he retired, um, 
his numbers were up there with with the best of the best, and I think people you know forget about that. And so, um, you know, I just think that the story of of of, of Lou and Tram together is something that I've told many times, but I I, I mean it. I I think it's a great baseball story. I think the Hall of Fame is that's what they're looking for. It's a it's a you know instead of one, it's two, and uh, he did he did pretty darn well himself. So I'm hoping, and I'm really. Um, I believe it's going to happen at some point in time that, that, that my partner is going to give the love that he deserves, that he's going to be part of the Hall of Fame with myself and some of the other Tigers um, that are already in there. Tram, what do you think is the sticking point, though? I mean, you look at his numbers. I've heard that argument about being yeah. a compiler, somebody who just amasses numbers because they played for so long. But there's something to be said for being able to play for so long. What, what, is, it, what is it in your mind? It just seems to be stuck at everyone's craw here. Yeah, I mean, part of the deal, uh, I, I think that with Lou is that, you know, as the uh, as a double play combination, I was more the outspoken one and, and uh, you know, the media and all Lou, that was something that not that he didn't speak to him, but, you know, he, he tried to try to stay away from him as much as he could. I always, you know, I'm pr- pretty observant. And the things that I observed is that when Lou had a good game, he might hide. If he had a bad game, or something that the media that he knew that they wanted to touch on, he was always there. And, you know, this goes back to kind of how we were taught from Sparky is that we had a 10 minute rule. I think going back, I think every team does now, but we had a cool down period. So every once in a while, especially the pitchers, because if they got knocked out, sometimes they didn't want to wait around three hour plus and they would leave before the game was, but Sparky's rule was, Hey, you don't want to talk to the media. You be a man. And when they come in there and you tell them, and I don't want to talk to you today, that's fine. And you can leave, but you tell them face to face, don't be ducking on it. So it would happen occasionally. He was always warn us that, uh, you know, at some point in time that he's going to take that rule away. And, uh, you know, he scared us a little bit and, and he never took it away, but you know, he, he scared us a little bit. But I think Lou, uh, took that to heart, you know, it's like, okay, you know what, you know, I know that I can get away with, you know, if I don't play, if I played well, I can go in the trainer's room. Eventually the, the beat guys, they're smart enough. They waited 20 minutes. They know the player has to come back out. Sometimes other guys would just take off and they would say, oh, you blew them off. No. Um, well, we, we knew kind of knew, and, and it was Mark knows, uh, there's little ways to, to, to do these things. Um, but I just, I, Lou was more shy. He's from, uh, that's just how his nature is. We're all different. And so I think that they held that against him um, and still to this day to a certain degree. And just, you know, from what I've been told over the years, you know, we were in Detroit, you know, the blue collar town, we didn't have the biggest media and we weren't out trying to sell ourselves. We are, we did our, our talking on the field and I know Lou did that as well. So I think those are some of the reasons I still doesn't give them a pass as far as not electing Lou Whitaker into the baseball hall of fame. I think uh, when you look back at careers, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Longevity speaks volumes, also consistency. And that's what both of you brought. Mike mentioned 1,800 games together, and that's third all in baseball. And why I say this is it's Ron Santo and Billy Williams Mm -hmm. of the Cubs. Then you got Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio from the Houston Astros. And there you guys slot right in front of Roberto Clemente and Bill Mazeroski. And why I say all of those names is seven of them of the eight are in the hall of fame and Lou Whitaker is not. I think that's the reason why there's so many arguments with that, but really tram 
my question to you is about yourself because you did find out that ultimate goal in getting into the Hall of Fame. What was that like? How did you find out? And where were you when you did find out? <laughs> well, I appreciate you. you you're, you're, uh, you're making a good case for my partner and let's keep doing that. Uh, we're going to, it's going to happen as I mentioned, but uh, the fact again, getting that call to the hall of fame, uh, the way that it's, it's set up is that the, there's 10 guys on the ballot for the veteran side. Obviously I was uh, elected from the veterans committee. And so about two weeks prior um, to the vote coming out, uh, we all got a call, and it's pretty simple. They give you a um, they give you a call. It's very short. It's pretty sweet. They tell you that if you get this call between five thirty and six o'clock Eastern time, you're in. And if you don't, you didn't make it. <laughs> it's, like, it's pretty cut and dry. It's like really anything else? No. Nope. If you get a call between that half hour window. You're in. And I was like, okay. So I told them, because at the time, and I'm still working for the Tigers, the winter meetings were in Orlando. So the the uh, the guys from San Diego that were going to the winter meetings, and it wasn't all just Padre people, but it was Hoffy was part one of them, Brad Osmus, um, who um, at the time was the manager of the Tigers, Buddy Black with the, with the Rockies. You know, he was, he was, uh, he was going, Rich Renteria, uh, uh, there was a oh, Steve Finley was there, and I'm missing some guys. Boach was there. Um, so my agent John Boggs. John, John Boggs. Oh, John Boggs. I can't forget about Boggsy. Yes, Boggsy was there as well. So we're all spread out through the plane. But I had told the Hall of Fame people when we had this call that I was going to be going to the winter meetings and that my flight was supposed to get in around 10 minutes to six. Well, I mentioned the window that you're supposed to get a call between 5.30 and 6. So they kind of played it off knowing that my flight hopefully was going to be on time. Well, it was. But I was in the back of the plane, literally in the back of the plane. And you can imagine um, in early December um, that the kids that were going to Orlando, you know where they were heading. They were going to Disney World or all the theme parks. So I got a call at around 10 minutes to six and I looked at the phone and I could see it was a New York number and my heart started pounding. I mean, there's literally, it was, I picked it up, I opened it up and lo and behold, it was Jane Forbes Clark telling me that I had just been selected. And so here I am, I'm standing in the aisle trying to deplane and this is true. <laughs> and I've got kids around me and I'm in the back of the plane still, we just gotten up. And I wanted to jump up and scream and do all this, but I didn't think I didn't think it was appropriate. So I've got all these emotions inside that are built up, and I just got to keep it cool, calm, and collective. And so I'm walking, and and you know it was only a couple minute conversation. Jane handed the phone to uh, you know a media relations person that was going to kind of prep me on what was going to happen when I got off the plane. So they asked me because MLB wanted to uh, uh, air it live. They asked me not to call anybody and say anything. So I knew all the rest of the guys and they knew that the vote was coming up. They didn't know yet. Um, and so they went to the baggage claim. I went to the restroom. I stalled a little bit. I got down there right before 6.15, which is when it was live on MLB. And uh, everybody was looking at me, waiting. And I kind of raised my arms up like, 
it happened. And uh, there was a, God, it's amazing how quickly uh, John Boggs was the one that said, hey, somebody got a, a, a camera phone. They took the picture of us down at baggage claim with a number of us. And that went viral like within seconds. And uh, it's something that I have hanging here uh, in my office. And uh, I'm sure a few others do, but uh, that's how I found out uh, that I made it into the Hall of Fame. Did you, uh, did you think that year was going to be the year? You waited a while. I mean, this was a Veterans Committee vote in 2018. Where was your head on that day going in? I, I'm going to tell you guys, I did not think it was going to happen. And the reason being, and, and so they had changed. That was the first year of the new Veterans Committee, the way that they're doing it now. They broke it up into four groups. So prior to that, the Veterans Committee uh, arguably was even harder, tougher to get in than the regular one. So I'm going to the winter meetings because I'm representing the Tigers and that's who I'm employed by. I'm working for them. Um, I didn't bring any clothes. I never thought it was going to happen. Honestly, I didn't have any clothes. And when I got there, that was the first thing I'm like, I don't even have a sport coat. I don't have anything. So I used John Boggs. I had, I had a pair of slacks, but I, you know, it was basically from the waist up when we went to the press conference. But I, I borrowed a shirt. I borrowed Boggsy's uh, sport coat. And they took all the pictures that they took was with Boggsy's blazer. That is the true story. But I did not have, did not think it was going to happen. And again, that was the new format, as I mentioned. So I didn't know the way it was going to come out, to be honest with you. Now I, I got a better feeling of it because it's happened a couple of times now with a Lee, Lee Smith and Harold Baines with the next year, they were in a different group, but nevertheless still part of the Veterans Committee. But what I'm finding out is that that committee was guys, and I'm going to give you an example of Rod Carew, Dennis Sackersley, Dave Winfield, George Brett, Robin Yount. Those were all my peers. Those were all guys that I played against. John Sherholt, Bobby Cox, people, general managers or managers that were part of my time. And I do believe that was the reason why Jack Morris, my another one of my teammates and myself got in is that, you know, going back and not just total numbers, but just looking at the whole ball of wax, the consistency, the years of service and those kinds of things. I think that's why that I was elected. And I'm again, very proud. Tram, you put so many things in perspective, but uh, going into the hall of fame, having to deal with uh, preparing a speech yeah, uh, with your wife Barb and also your family members, which w I was there for yours and Hoffy, yeah. and and it yeah. was it was thrilling. What was that? If you can sum up, what was that week like for you in in leading up to that Hall of Fame speech? Well, um, I'm gonna speak for Hoffy and all the six of us that were in there in this particular instant. It's like everybody's telling you, you got to enjoy it. It's the best week of your life, but it's also it's also going to be the toughest. And it was, it was all of that. And all I know is that this past year, it was so much more relaxing. <laughs> it really was. But that week of, of, I mean, I think we all did a, a very good job of making our presentation. We all know a Hoffie and how he gets up and he's done this so many times. I think he could be a public speaker. But the fact is that we all had prepared for months. I know that when I left Orlando and I told you that I got the news and we were there for four days, my flight back to San Diego, I started making notes already, starting to script what I wanted to say. So I started that months, months in advance. And then the fact that I'm sure my neighbors were probably thinking, who's this crazy dude? 
I'm out there walking my dogs for a month or six weeks prior, and I'm practicing my speech as I'm walking around the block. <laughs> you know, just trying to make sure that you don't stumble because you just you want to you want to uh, represent yourself and your family and baseball. And I know that we all felt the same way. Um, and uh, but I, I wanted to say something about Hoffy because I coached there in San Diego for three years, and Hoffy was in you know his days there. That's when he was at the top of his game. And I watched the way he went about his business. And I always said to myself that I wish I could have played with him because he was a great teammate, not only a great player, but a great teammate. And I told him years before that when you make it to the Hall of Fame, I'm going to be there. And lo and behold, <laughs> we both got elected in the same year. So that story about I'm going to be there, but I didn't realize that I was going to be a part of that as well is very special to, to me. And, uh, you know, he is a great family man, as we know. And, uh, you know, again, I stand by that comment. I wish I could have played. You're elected into the Hall of Fame. You go in with friends, uh, colleagues, also your peers. And now you're in the ultimate fraternity. And there's a hazing element when it comes to the to the Hall of Fame. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I heard I heard something about Rolling Stones. If that, oh, yeah. Well, you know what? Um, you'd heard these rumors that certain years, some guys, you know, you'd get away with it. You didn't have to do anything, and then other years, uh, you had to, you know, tell a joke sing a line of a song and whatever and like i'm thinking to myself oh man you know what i hope i hope this is one of those years that uh, that we don't and so lo and behold this was a year that uh, they made most of us get up and do something and so um i was in my own i was i i thought of something that uh, just in case so there was a little line that uh, from a rolling stones song that uh, and I blurted out and they booed me off I did it I said it twice and it was all in good fun and you know what um you know I look back on that as being part of the deal you know and, and last year they didn't do it they didn't make those guys any of them get oh, wow. like thinking myself but you know what it was it was part of it it, it actually put a good little flavor on on our group and uh, you know guys like Chipper Jones who's got a great personality and Jim Tomei, who is just, uh, you know, like everybody's best friend. Uh, and even Vladi, you know, uh, did something, you know, in Spanish. So, you know what, uh, you know, it was, it was all, it was, you, you can't duplicate it, guys. And that first time that you're in, you know, the next one, and each and every one, you know, God forbid that we're, you know, you're healthy enough to continue to go. But now it's just cake. Now it's just enjoy it, have the dinner and, you know, you know, wine and dine and all that good stuff. But that there's nothing like that first time, and uh, it's just something that uh, you know. Put your, your HOF when you sign a baseball, uh, and you put HOF on there, man. That is uh, that is extra special. Very cool. Trim, is it possible that after you sang, that was the reason they stopped asking other classes to do it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. If you're looking for a pattern. Uh, yeah, I, you know what? I, I think like we all are, you know, in the shower, we're pretty good. Uh, but when you start doing it in front of people and the voice, uh, it just, no. I, I you know, I, as I've said many times, like when I'm playing golf and I'll kid around to somebody else, I'm like, don't quit your day job. And uh, that, that applies. that applies to the singing. 
but uh, you know what? It was it was it was fun. It is actually something that uh, now that I did it, and you know, we can tell the story about that that I got up there, and it was basically I don't even know if it was thirty seconds that I was up there. But the fact is, is that yeah, you're nervous, and you're hoping to God that you don't have to when they call you up there because they come up there and they give you your Hall of Fame ring, and then. You know, you're hoping, okay, it's just they're going to give you the ring and you're going to get to sit back down. They go, oh, no, 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 hey, not so fast, Tram, not so fast. And it's like, oh, God. And uh, lo and behold, like I said, I made it. I'm still living and I'm, I'm, I'm still here to tell you the story. Alan, you know, for a lot of us as fans, uh, you you got to make that pilgrimage to Cooperstown. You got to go to the Hall of Fame. We're all excited to see what our favorite players have in Cooperstown, what's enshrined there. Um, the story with you is interesting to me because you're known not to be necessarily the greatest collector of Alan Trammell gear and paraphernalia, uh, but apparently the doorstep of your agent, John Boggs, is a pretty good place to put some things. <laughs> Give us some perspective on what's in the Hall of Fame and how it got there. Oh, my gosh. Well, um, let's see. You know what? Um, I gave him a job. I did not collect, and that's that's shame on me. And I look back at myself, and I kick myself, and you know what, about you know looking at uh, uh, the jersey each and every year. Now we were always told um, after the year was over, you know, we weren't supposed to take our jersey. Well, I know now that guys weren't listening to that, but I did for the most part. I I had a jersey from 1987. I didn't have a jersey from 1984 when we won the World Series. I didn't. I don't have it. And I gave it, I turned it in, you know, when we had the champagne on it, I threw it into the hamper and uh, lo and behold, that's, that's where it was. So I got a few of them, you know, later on, but uh, nevertheless, you know what, uh, the memories, and I, I stand by that guys, that uh, the memories are here and never can take those away. And uh, that's what I'm going to live with. But I do have quite a few things, but the John Boggs story is that the day at, or shortly thereafter, I retired in 1996. I came into his office with a, it was a trash bag. It's a literally a glad bag, just full of stuff. And I popped it on the ground there. And if you know John Boggs, uh, he loves that kind of stuff. And I, I just felt like, you know, this was somebody that would really enjoy this. Um, the mistake that I made is that then you got to sign it all. Uh, and I'm just kidding about that. But uh, so we had a good talk and he's, he tells that story, but he's very proud of that. And I'm, I'm proud of that as well, that he has uh, some of my mementos, uh, some of the last shoes that I wore, my last helmet. Um, and I, 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 you know, people would think, oh, man, well, why don't, uh, why don't you want that? Why didn't you want it? It's like, you know what? I said, the memories are here. That's good enough for me. And I still have enough, as my wife would say, enough dust collector stuff uh, in my closets and boxes and things like that. But uh, he really is a baseball fan. And uh, you know, I love that man. Tram, you've uh, uh, developed a, a relationship with baseball. You know how important it was for you as a player, as a coach, as a manager, uh, going into the Hall of Fame. Now for our listeners, what's next? I know you're a special assistant to the general manager in Detroit. What's next for you? Well, what's next is what I'm doing. Honestly, I'm going to ride in off into the sunset doing what I'm doing right now, guys. Uh, they've allowed me, the Tigers have allowed me to be a part of, of everything. And I'm very, again, very appreciative that they uh, like my input, not that, you know, I'm the sole, you know, influence, but I'm not, but as one of the group, they include me in the draft, in the winter meetings, uh, trading deadline. Um, and that just makes you feel good and wanted that you're part of an organization, obviously, 
You know, it was a place I came up. I played my entire career. Um, you know, it's a very special place to me. And right now we're not very good. So what drives me is, you know, trying to be you know, a part of this to try to help us get back on the map, so to speak. But, you know, when I first left the coaching part, I thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. But now that I've been doing this for five or six years, this is exactly where I want to be. It gives me a chance to get back home occasionally, but also be out there in the field and doing what I love. But this is what I'm going to continue to do and hopefully for, for a number of years to come. And we know you're helping with a lot of great causes, some uh, charities as well for your buddy, Kirk Gibson, Sparky Anderson's foundation as well. Alan, I got to tell you, 20 years with one club, that's a milestone. Six-time All-Star, World Series winner, World Series MVP, a list of accolades a mile long, and a 2018 Hall of Fame inductee. Congratulations on a wonderful, wonderful career. Well. Thank you so much. I appreciate that very much. And uh, I'm still living the dream. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.